0: Chapter 7 of Three Men on the Bummel. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tara Mendoza. Three Men on the Bummel by Jerome K. Jerome. Chapter 7 George Wonders Gilman Love of Order. The band of the Schwarzwald Blackbirds will perform at seven. The China Dog. Its superiority over all other dogs. The German and the solar system. A tidy country. The mountain valley as it ought to be according to the German idea. How the waters come down in Germany. The scandal of Dresden. Harris gives an entertainment. It is unappreciated george and the aunt of him george a cushion and three damsels at a point between Berlin and dresden george who had for the last quarter of an hour or so been looking very attentively out the window said why in germany is it the custom to put the letter-box up a tree why do they not fix it to the front as we do i should hate having to climb up a tree to get my letters besides It is not fair to the postman. In addition to being most exhausting, the delivery of letters must to a heavy man on windy nights be positively dangerous work. If they will fix it to a tree, why not fix it lower down? Why always among the topmost branches? But maybe I am misjudging the country,' he continued, a new idea occurring to him. "'Possibly the Germans, who are in many matters ahead of us, have perfected a pigeon-post.' Even so, I cannot help thinking they would have been wiser to train the birds while they were about it to deliver the letters nearer the ground. Getting your letters out of those boxes must be tricky work, even to the average middle-aged German. I followed his gaze out of window. I said, "'Those are not letter-boxes. They are birds' nests. You must understand this nation. The German loves birds, but he likes tidy birds.' A bird left to himself builds his nest just anywhere. It is not a pretty object, according to the German notion of prettiness. There is not a bit of paint on it, anywhere, not a plaster image all around, not even a flag. The nest finished, the bird proceeds to live outside it. He drops things on the grass, twigs, ends of worms, all sorts of things. He is indelicate. He makes love, quarrels with his wife, and feeds the children quite in public. The German householder is shocked. He says to the bird, For many things I like you. I like to look at you, I like to hear you sing, but I don't like your ways. Take this little box, and put your rubbish inside where I can't see it. Come out when you want to sing, but let your domestic arrangements be confined to the interior. Keep to the box, and don't make the garden untidy. In Germany, One breathes in love of order with the air. In Germany, the babies beat time with their rattles, and the German bird has come to prefer the box, and to regard with contempt the few uncivilized outcasts who continue to build their nests in trees and hedges. In course of time, every German bird, one is confident, will have his proper place in a full chorus. This promiscuous and desultory warbling of his must one feels be irritating to the precise German mind. There is no method in it. The music-loving German will organize him. Some stout bird with a specially well-developed crop will be trained to conduct him, and instead of wasting himself in a wood at four o'clock in the morning, he will at the advertised time sing in a beer-garden accompanied by a piano. Things are drifting that way. Your German likes nature, but his idea of nature is a glorified Welsh harp. He takes great interest in his garden. He plants seven rose-trees on the north side and seven on the south, and if they do not grow up all the same size and shape it worries him so that he cannot sleep of nights. Every flower he ties to a stick. This interferes with his view of the flower, but he has the satisfaction of knowing it is there and that it is behaving itself. The leg is lined with zinc, and once a week he takes it up, carries it into the kitchen, and scours it. In the geometrical centre of the grass plot, which is sometimes as large as a tablecloth and is generally railed round, he places a china dog. The Germans are very fond of dogs, but as a rule they prefer them of china. The china dog never digs holes in the lawn to bury bones and never scatters a flower-bed to the winds with his hind legs. From the German point of view, he is the ideal dog. He stops where you put him, and he is never where you do not want him. You can have him perfect in all points according to the latest requirements of the kennel club, or you can indulge your own fancy and have something unique. You are not, as with other dogs, limited to breed. In China, you can have a blue dog, or a pink dog, For a little extra you can have a double-headed dog. On a certain fixed date in the autumn the German stakes his flowers and bushes to the earth and covers them with Chinese matting, and on a certain fixed date in the spring he uncovers them and stands them up again. If it happens to be an exceptionally fine autumn, or an exceptionally late spring, so much the worse for the unfortunate vegetable. No true German would allow his arrangements to be interfered with by so unruly a thing as the solar system unable to regulate the weather, he ignores it. Among trees, your German's favourite is the poplar. Other disorderly nations may sing the charms of the rugged oak, the spreading chestnut, or the waving elm. To the German all such, with their willful and tidy ways, are eyesores. The poplar grows where it is planted, and how it is planted. It has no improper rugged ideas of its own. It does not want to wave or to spread itself, it just grows straight and upright, as a German tree should grow, and so, gradually, the German is rooting out all other trees, and replacing them with poplars. Your German likes the country, but he prefers it, as the lady thought she would, the noble savage, more dressed. He likes his walk through the wood, to a restaurant, but the pathway must not be too steep it must have a brick gutter running down on one side of it to drain it and every twenty yards or so it must have its seats on which he can rest and mop his brow for your german would no more think of sitting on the grass than would an english bishop dream of rolling down one tree hill he likes his view from the summit of the hill but he likes to find there a stone tablet telling him what to look at find a table and bench at which he can sit to partake of the frugal beer, and the semel he has been careful to bring with him if in addition he can find a police notice posted on a tree forbidding him to do something or other that gives him an extra sense of comfort and security your german is not averse even to wild scenery provided it be not too wild but if he consider it too savage he sets to work to tame it i remember in the neighbourhood of dresden discovering a picturesque and narrow valley leading down towards the Elbe. The winding roadway ran beside a mountain torrent, which for a mile or so fretted and foamed over rocks and boulders between wood-covered banks. I followed it enchanted, until turning a corner I suddenly came across a gang of eighty or a hundred workmen. They were busy tidying up that valley and making that stream respectable. All the stones that were impeding the course of the water they were carefully picking out and carting away. The bank, on either side, they were bricking up and cementing. The overhanging trees and bushes, the tangled vines and creepers, they were rooting up and trimming down. A little further I came upon the finished work. The mountain valley as it ought to be, according to the German ideas. The water, now a broad sluggish stream, flowed over a level gravelly bed, between two walls crowned with stone coping. At every hundred yards it gently descended down three shallow wooden platforms. For a space on either side, the ground had been cleared, and at regular intervals young poplars planted. Each sapling was protected by a shield of wickerwork work embossed by an iron rod. In the course of a couple of years it is the hope of the local council to have finished that valley throughout its entire length and made it fit for a tidy-minded lover of german nature to walk there will be a seat every fifty yards a police notice every hundred and a restaurant every half mile they are doing the same from the memel to the rhine they are just tidying up the country i remember well the witherall it was once the most romantic ravine to be found in the black forest the last time i walked down it Some hundreds of Italian workmen were encamped there, hard at work, training the wild little weir, the way it should go, bricking the banks for it here, blasting the rocks for it there, making cement steps for it down which it can travel soberly and without fuss. For in Germany there is no nonsense talked about, untrammeled nature. In Germany nature has got to behave herself, and not set a bad example to the children, a German poet noticing waters coming down, as Southey described, somewhat inexactly. The waters coming down at Lador would be too shocked to stop and write alliterative verse about them. He would hurry away, and at once report them to the police. Then their foaming and their shrieking would be of short duration. "'Now then, now then, what's all this about?' The voice of German authority would say severely to the waters, we can't have this sort of thing you know come down quietly can't you where do you think you are and the local german council would provide those waters with zinc pipes and wooden troughs and a corkscrew staircase and show them how to come down sensibly in the german manner it is a tidy land as germany we reached dresden on the wednesday evening and stayed there over the sunday taking one consideration with another Dresden, perhaps, is the most attractive town in Germany, but it is a place to be lived in for a while rather than visited. Its museums and galleries, its palaces and gardens, its beautiful and historically rich environment, provide pleasure for a winter, but bewilder for a week. It is not the gaiety of Paris or Vienna, which quickly palls. Its charms are more solidly German and more lasting. It is the mecca of the musician, For five shillings, in Dresden, you can purchase a stall at the opera house together, unfortunately, with a strong disinclination ever again to take the trouble of sitting out a performance in any English, French, or American opera house. The chief scandal of Dresden still centres round August the Strong, the man of sin, as Carlyle always called him, who is popularly reputed to have cursed Europe with over a thousand children castles where he imprisoned this discarded mistress or that one of them who persisted in her claim to a better title for forty years it is said poor lady the narrow rooms where she ate her heart out and died are still shown chateaux shameful for this deed of infamy or that lie scattered round the neighbourhood like bones about a battlefield and most of your guides stories are such as the young person educated in germany had best not hear his life-sized portrait hangs in the fine Zwinger, which he built as an arena for his wild beast fights when the people grew tired of them in the market-place. A beetle-browed, frankly animal-man, but with the culture and taste that so often wait upon animalism, modern Dresden undoubtedly owes much to him. But what the stranger in Dresden stares at most is, perhaps, its electric trams—these huge vehicles! flash through the streets from ten to twenty miles an hour, taking curves and corners after the manner of an Irish car driver. Everybody travels by them, excepting only officers in uniform, who must not. Ladies in evening dress, going to ball or opera, porters with their baskets sit side by side. They are all important in the streets, and everything and everybody makes haste to get out of their way. If you do not get out of their way, and you still happen to be alive when picked up, then on your recovery you are fined for having been in their way. This teaches you to be weary of them. One afternoon Harris took a bummel by himself. In the evening, as we sat listening to the band at the Belvedere, Harris said, a propos of nothing in particular. "'These Germans have no sense of humour. "'What makes you think that?' I asked. "'Why, this afternoon,' he answered." "'I jumped on one of those electric tram-cars. "'I wanted to see the town, "'so I stood outside on the little platform. "'What do you call it?' "'The stay-plats,' I suggested. "'That's it,' said Harris. "'Well, you know the way they shake you about, "'and how you have to look out for the corners "'and mind yourself when they stop and when they start.' "'I nodded. "'There were about half a dozen of us standing there,' he continued. "'And, of course, I'm not experienced.' The thing started suddenly, and that jerked me backwards. I fell against a stout gentleman just behind me. He could not have been standing very firmly himself, and he, in his turn, fell back against a boy who was carrying a trumpet in a green-baize case. They never smiled. Neither the man nor the boy with the trumpet. They just stood there and looked sulky. I was going to say I was sorry, but before I could get the words out, the tram eased up, for some reason or other, and that, of course, shot me forward again and I butted into a white-haired old chap, who looked to me like a professor. while well, he never smiled, never moved a muscle. Maybe he was thinking of something else, I suggested. That could not have been the case with them all, replied Harris. And in the course of that journey, I must have fallen against every one of them at least three times. You see, explained Harris, they knew when the corners were coming, and in which direction to brace themselves. I, as a stranger, was naturally at a disadvantage. The way I rolled and staggered about that platform, clutching wildly now at this man and now at that, must have been really comic. I don't say it was a high-class humour, but it would have amused most people. Those Germans seemed to see no fun in it, whatever. Just seemed anxious, that was all. There was one man, a little man, who stood with his back against the brake. I fell against him five times, I counted them. You would have expected the fifth time would have dragged a laugh out of him, but it didn't. He merely looked tired. They are a dull lot. George also had an adventure at Dresden. There was a shop near the Alt Market, in the window of which were exhibited some cushions for sale. The proper business of the shop was handling of glass and china. The cushions appeared to be in the nature of an experiment. They were very beautiful cushions, hand-embroidered on satin. We often passed the shop, and every time George paused and examined those cushions, he said he thought his aunt would like them. George has been very attentive to this aunt of his during the journey. He has written her quite a long letter every day, and from every turn we stop at, he sends her off a present. To my mind, he is overdoing the business, and more than once I have expostulated with him. His aunt will be meeting with other aunts and talking to them. The whole class will be becoming disorganized and unruly. As a nephew— I object to the impossible standard that George is setting up, but he will not listen. Therefore, it was that on the Saturday he left us after lunch, saying he would go round to that shop and get one of those cushions for his aunt. He said he would not be long and suggested our waiting for him. We waited for what seemed to me rather a long time. When he rejoined us, he was empty-handed and looked worried. We asked him where his cushion was. He said he hadn't got a cushion, said he had changed his mind, said he didn't think his aunt would care for a cushion. Evidently something was amiss. We tried to get to the bottom of it, but he was not communicative. Indeed, his answers after our twentieth question or thereabouts became quite short. In the evening, however, when he and I happened to be alone, he broached the subject himself. He said, "'They are somewhat peculiar in some things, these Germans.' I said, "'What has happened?' "'Well,' he answered, "'there was that cushion I wanted.' "'For your aunt,' I remarked. "'Why not?' he returned. "'He was huffy in a moment. "'I never knew a man so touchy about an aunt. "'Why shouldn't I send a cushion to my aunt?' "'Don't get excited,' I replied. "'I'm not objecting. "'I respect you for it.' "'He recovered his temper and went on. "'There were four in the window, if you remember, "'all very much alike, "'and each one labelled in plain figures twenty marks.' I don't pretend to speak German fluently, but I can generally make myself understood with a little effort, and gather the sense of what it said to me, provided they don't gabble. I went into the shop. A young girl came up to me. She was a pretty quiet little soul. One might almost say demure. Not at all the sort of girl from whom you would have expected such a thing. I was never more surprised in all my life. Surprised about what? I said. George. Always assumes you know the end of the story, while he is telling you the beginning. It is an annoying method. "'And what happened?' replied George. "'And what I am telling you?' She smiled, and asked me what I wanted. I understood that all right. There could have been no mistake about that. I put down a twenty-mark piece on the counter, and said, "'Please give me a cushion.' She stared at me as if I had asked for a feather bed. I thought maybe she had not heard— So I repeated it louder. If I had chucked her under the chin, she could not have looked more surprised or indignant. She said she thought I must be making a mistake. I did not want to begin a long conversation and find myself stranded. I said there was no mistake. I pointed to my 20-mark piece and repeated for the third time that I wanted a cushion, a 20-mark cushion. Another girl came up, an elder girl, and the first girl repeated to her what I had just said. She seemed quite excited about it. The second girl did not believe her, did not think I looked the sort of man who would want a cushion. To make sure, she put the question to me herself. Did you say you wanted a cushion? she asked. I have said it three times. I answered, I will say it again. I want a cushion. She said, Then you can't have one. I was getting angry by this time. If I hadn't really wanted the thing, I should have walked out of the shop. "'but there the cushions were in the window evidently for sale. "'I didn't see why I couldn't have one. "'I said I will have one. "'It is a simple sentence. "'I said it with determination. "'A third girl came up at this point, "'the three representing, I fancy, the whole force of the shop. "'She was a bright-eyed, saucy-looking little wench, this last one. "'On any other occasion I might have been pleased to see her. "'Now her coming only irritated me.' I didn't see the need of three girls for this business. The first two girls started explaining the thing to the third girl, and before they were half way through, the third girls began to giggle. She was the sort of girl who would giggle at anything. That done, they fell to chattering like Jenny Wren's, all three together, and between every half dozen words they looked across at me. And the more they looked at me, the more the third girl giggled. And before they had finished, they were all three giggling, the little idiots. "'You might have thought I was a clown giving a private performance.' "'When she was steady enough to move, the third girl came up to me. "'She was still giggling. She said, "'If you get, where you go?' "'I didn't quite understand her at first, and she repeated it. "'Discussion. When you've got it, where you go ve, at once? "'I was only too anxious to go, I told her so, "'but I added that I was not going without it.' I had made up my mind to have that cushion now if I stopped in the shop all night for it. She rejoined the other two girls. I thought they were going to get me the cushion and have done with the business. Instead of that, the strangest thing possible happened. The two other girls got behind the first girl, all three still giggling, heaven knows about what, and pushed her towards me. They pushed her close up to me, and then before I knew what was happening, she put her hands on my shoulder, stood up on tiptoe, and kissed me. "'after which, burying in her face in her apron, "'she ran off, followed by the second girl. "'The third girl opened the door for me "'and so evidently expected me to go. "'That, in my confusion, I went, "'leaving me twenty marks behind me. "'I don't say I minded the kiss, "'though I did not particularly want it. "'While I did want the cushion, "'I don't like to go back to the shop. "'I cannot understand the thing at all.' "'I said, "'What did you ask for?' "'He said, "'A cushion!' I said, ''That is what you wanted, I know. What it means. What was the actual German word you said?'' He replied, ''A kuss. I said, ''You have nothing to complain of. It is somewhat confusing. A kuss sounds as if it ought to be a cushion, but it is not. It is a kiss. Well, a kissen is a cushion. You muddles up the two words. People have done it before. I don't know much about this sort of thing myself.'' but you asked for a twenty-mark kiss, and from your description of the girl some people might consider the price reasonable. Anyhow, I should not tell Harris, if I remember rightly. He also has an aunt. George agreed with me. It would be better not. End of chapter 7 Recording by Terra Mendoza Phoenix, Arizona, May, 2011